Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of my JavaScript story. This week, we're talking to one of our co-hosts or one of our panelists on JavaScript Jabber, AJ O'Neill. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. Uh Uh-oh, you didn't start with yo, yo, yo. What are we going to do? Well, it's not it's not JavaScript Jabber, and I'm the guest. I can't come on as the guest and be like, yo, yo, yo. I mean, that's pretentious. Fine, fine, fine. All right, so uh, do you want to just give a brief introduction, who you are, what you oh do? Gosh, that's like the hardest thing in the whole world to do, a brief introduction to who I am. I'd say I'm a quirky, goofball type of person who is super ADD and really interested in understanding how things work and why. And a lot of what drives me in technology is trying to figure out ways of like self-hosting or owning or DIYing. Like I'm, I'm really into that. Mm-hmm. And where are you working these days? Well, right now I work in Salt Lake at a place called Big Squid. And they, they're kind of like a, you could think of it as, as almost like an extension for a Domo or Tableau or Click. So those companies help you get your data together and, and kind of like filter it and organize it so that you have a, a clean set of data to look at and to be able to visualize. And what we do at Big Squid is take that data that has, has already gone through. I mean, we also do CSV uploads and Excel uploads as well, but, but typically it's, you know, larger sets of data that have already had somewhat of an eye go through to narrow it down a little bit to like, this is what's important. And then we help you narrow that down further to this is how these things relate to one another and provide prediction models for say, if you change the price of the product, because you find that the price is highly correlated to user retention or whatever, you know, if you tweak that number, how is that going to change in relationship to the other numbers? So it basically data mining slash machine learning slash AI, but not AI like self-driving car, like looking at the data and using heuristics to, to get at better data for you. Gotcha. And then, and then I have my own company as well that I am working on to the end of, of being able to have a consumer-friendly home server. Nice. Yeah, and I think we've talked about that at some length between the two of us, but I think it's also come up on the show some. So is there a place people can go check that out or is it not ready for human consumption yet? Well, the things that are ready for consumption, there's primarily two products that we have, which the first is, and they're both Node, Right now, at least, one of them, I want to move in another direction for efficiency purposes for certain parts of it. Parts I still want to keep in note. But GreenLock.js is a Let's Encrypt client. We have one for the browser, 
as well as that integrates with Node and Express and basically anything that you're doing in Node. Um, you could even use it on a mail server, anything that uses TLS. And then the other thing is called Telebit, and that is a remote access tool. So you install it on your computer and you get a domain name. And when you access that domain name, you actually have an encrypted connection from the browser to the device that you've installed it on. It mm -hmm. does go through a relay. The, the purpose of this is to, to have basically progressive decentralization. And so the first step is we just need to get devices connected. So it does go through a, a relay, but the relay doesn't, doesn't know what the data is. It just sees a TLS header that tells it a domain name, and then it knows what device that's connected and authenticated okay. on the back end to forward that data to. So you can you can serve a web browser from a Raspberry Pi inside of a dorm room or or something like that. Or uh, what's really great for is if you if you work with people and you you want to be able to go back and forth a little bit on on something you're developing, whether it's API or front end or whatever. Just being able to you know give them a domain and say, hey, hit this endpoint, or hey, look at what I'm what I'm working on. So it's got a lot of application in the education and and co or, or like pair working type of scenario. Very cool. This episode or this show is more focused on your story about getting into code, but it's interesting to kind of see where you're at and then we can kind of backfill and, and let people know how you got there. Okay. So let's, let's back up and talk about how you got into programming. Oh, let's see. A long, long time ago. Yeah, exactly. I was in middle school. So first of all, we have, to, we have to go back further than that. My grandmother was working as a secretary at the Pentagon and or administrative assistant of some sort. She was working on getting people paid, like, like getting people's checks processed. And there, I think if I recall correctly, she said there was a pretty high error rate, like between 5 and 10% of the time, there'd be a typo or a mistake or something and people would have to come in and say, ah, you know, I, my, my paycheck is incorrect or the wrong numbers on it or something. And because at that time it was all done by hand. And so she wrote a, a program to help assist with that so there'd be fewer errors. So she got into computers, ended up being some sort of administrator at, at, at some point she, she no longer even knew what she did anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, I don't know. I just answer a bunch of emails. But she she kind of went through the, the the ladder and went up and up and up. And, and part of that was was uh, technology programming and networking for her. Because of that, she had a computer at home. Right. So I started playing games like Fisher Price School Bus. And there was some T-Rex game. Those two in particular, I remember, I just loved to play. She programmed a command so I could type something like games, and then it would come up with a menu of the games that were installed. And so I could hit like one, two, or three. And she actually wrote that herself. It was <laughs> nice. Visual Basic or something, or not Visual Basic, uh, Basic or QBasic or something like that. And I was just, I was just fascinated by computers. Uh, when I got into middle school, I found one of probably her old basic books that she had passed down to my dad that my dad didn't take much interest in because she bought my dad a computer for, for his lawn care business to be able to manage his clients and stuff. And he didn't really get super into it. But so, so some of that material landed to me and I started to learn a little bit of basic. 
And then I, I did a roundup in the neighborhood where there was a couple of people that had DOS computers. So like, imagine, you know, the, the stereotypical scene of a child walking through, uh, you know, semi-rural suburbia with a red, red wagon knocking on doors and saying, Hey, do you have any old junky computers? That's, that's what I did. Like I literally uh, uh, unloaded like two or three computers from, from people <laughs> that I found in the neighborhood that like somebody told me, Oh yeah, my dad's got an old computer or just like knocked on a couple random doors asking people if they had an old computer. And so I started taking them apart and putting them together and uh, letting out some of the magic smoke. Cause back then you could do things. Like, that too. Yeah. There, we did, we did not everything was either like now today, everything's either like it's permanent on the circuit board or it's attached via USB. And back then you had like cables and stuff inside a computer. I mean, I, I guess like gaming systems, you still have some, but it's not the same. And, and so I, I'd like, I learned that you shouldn't, that the red wire has to go into pin one. And if you put it upside down, the hard drive will never work again. I, I learned that at, a, at an early age. I, probably the first porn that I ever saw was uh, in in sixteen colors as I was inserting like a five and a quarter floppy, and it had oh, it had a a demo folder on it, and I opened up the demo folder, and it had like four pictures in there to just show like how capable the graphics card was, and so I I discovered that mistakenly, and uh, when I went to high school, I was really fortunate, just super lucky, you know, being in the right area. Uh-huh. I I got into a technical program that was focused on aviation. But the reason I went was because in order to get into the aviation program, you had to take these computer classes continually. Mm-hmm. So the first time I ever saw Linux was one of the teachers had it installed. And I, I mean, like other than asking what's that, I didn't get into it. But then when I moved, I got into another technical program at the next high school. Again, just happened to be super lucky. And this was even a better program. It was focused ex- explicitly on computers. And it was, uh, so I was in Virginia. I, I don't remember if it was Denby, I think was the high school I, I went to there. And then in, there was Essex Center for Technology in Vermont that I, I went to. And I had this teacher, uh, Mr. Gunter. Is it Gunter or Gunther? I don't remember, but he, I'd ask him questions and he'd look at me like, what are you stupid? And say, I don't know, Google it. <laughs> kind of a you know goofy mm-hmm. way, but it, it was really helpful because if I asked him a valid question, like one that I wouldn't find in three seconds by typing it in on Google, he'd, you know, he'd coach me. But if I asked him something that was like he knew was obvious, He'd he'd be like, well, did you try <laughs> typing that into Google? And that right so had a lot of uh, help from him in learning. And that was that was an IT program. I had my own IT business. I made some cards. Friends would tell me about a problem they were having with a computer at home. I'd say, here, give this to your mom. And then you know their mom or dad would call me up, and I'd go over. That's how I got my date money. I worked mm-hmm. at the supermarket to get my to pay my car insurance. But then the superfluous money was was from doing these side jobs once or twice on, <laughs> on weekends. Gotta love the side hustle. Yeah, and I've, I mean, I've always been that way. Even before computers, I was trying to do stuff. And then I I got a job out of... I mean, like, I that's where I started to learn Linux because he was big on Linux, that teacher was. And I I basically quit doing the assigned work because we he had told us a deal that if we passed the the exam, we'd get an A for the year. 
I don't know, somewhere in the first quarter of the year, I stopped doing all the work and just focused on prepping for the exam. It was A plus. And then um, I passed the exam before the first semester was over, got my A for the year, started learning Linux. Then they came back to me later and said, actually, we didn't think that anyone would pass the final exam within the first two quarters. So, <laughs> so there's a there's a problem kind of legally we can't not have you doing something. So we're just going to have to have you take the second year of the program. And now you're going to have to pass that exam to get your A for the year. Right. So I, I, uh, I waited until like the last two weeks of school, got my Network Plus exam done because that was super easy after all the Linux stuff and all the Windows stuff and right. every, you know, everything with the A+. The week after school ended, I got my Linux Plus. So I graduated high school with a lot of technical knowledge and uh, was way underpaid for a job that I was way overqualified for, but was happy as a clam because if you're in high school, you don't know that. And, you know, like, right. you, you're just you're just so lucky to get paid, you know, $10 an hour to, to do work that someone else might get paid 20 or $30 an hour. Yeah. But, you know, you, you get to work on what you love. So I actually, my official title that I got was, was at another high school. Somebody had referred me and, and said, Hey, I know they're looking for a tech guy over the, this high school, go check it out and apply there. So I did. And my official title was like AV monitor or AV dude. But I, I actually was the network technician there. Like I imaged all machines I got everything like smooth and running. Like within within my first couple of months, I'd solved all the problems that they had where, you know, like computers were getting viruses or, you know, images weren't consistent between different labs. So I got all that consistent. And then I automated a solution to do what my job, like my, my primary official job was, which was to make sure that the TVs went to the right room at the right time. I got some PHP software that, that somebody had, had put up and installed it on a, on a server in the school. And... It was meeting room booking system. MRBS was the the name of the project. <laughs> so I I edited the code, and that was like my first quasi. Well, it didn't become a contribution to open source. But that was my first edit of an open source project. Was I just changed the name to be like audio visual equipment booking system, and I you know went through a bunch of different files and changed that and gave it to the teachers so they could sign up and reserve what was supposed to be rooms, but instead I named the room like TV1, TV2, and right stuff like that. Uh, and, and so then I had nothing to do because I'd solved all the problems and had automated my job away. And so I got to sit and learn PHP pretty much every day, all day, except that a couple times a day, I'd have to go move a TV from one room to another. Mm-hmm. Am I rambling on too long about this? Or you still want to no, hear No, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. And it, it's funny because it's so many people that I've talked to for this show and other shows. Um, I've probably done a couple hundred interviews for the My Story shows. And what's funny is, is they all have either I went to school and I found it, which is pretty much the minority at this point, or it's, you know, I was, I was fiddling with it and then somebody started paying me to do it. And then I had a problem. I, you know, I found a solution and then I just, you know, did it for my, my free time. And, and so I think, I think it's interesting just to see, oh, you know, you, you kind of engineered your way around to be able to spend more time on programming. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of how I got started learning. And there's, there's a couple cool stories I have from that time that maybe I'll gloss over for now, but I could, I could come back to if we have extra time once I 
go through some of your other questions, but I got involved with some user groups, found out about those. I was searching Linux questions and I found like an answer that was from someone in Vermont that was like close by at a university. And it turns out there right. was a group. And so I found out about that. Then I, I left for two years and lived in Albania. I was doing a service mission for my church. Then when I came back from that, it was it was actually a little jarring because I like before I left, I was involved in all these projects and you know I'd been learning all this stuff and I didn't really do much with computers for that two years. I mean I, I snuck some some service work like at the library and things like that in every once in a while as I could. And uh, you know, every once in a while I'd have a conversation with someone because there were a couple people that that we that we met with and and taught about uh, the gospel, but also were interested in computers. So I was super excited to just like talk with them about that. And that like helped us build a, you know, an authentic relationship. I loved learning Albanian. I loved learning the language. And it was cool to learn the computer words. I learned a lot of computer words and a lot of cooking words. So I, I was, I would say I was earlier on than most people. I was capable of like building more authentic relationships because of that passion that that drove me. And, you know, I, I wanted to even be able to talk about it in a language I didn't understand that well at the time. But I came back, I started going to school at BYU and they have a great computer science program. I think that it's pretty well known across the country that it's it's a, a great school, especially for computer science, along with a couple other majors that they do really well. Accounting is one of them. So I took a couple classes there and that just like accelerated my learning by at least 10x, if not 100x. User groups were super important. I found out, you know, I, I continued to get back into the user group scene and do like the on-campus meetups with other students, but also went on off campus to meet with, you know, other people that were doing at their business locations, hosting meetups. But getting that formal education to learn, I mean, just my 101 class was my, my, there was like a one, 101 and 102. One of them was about hardware. Mostly it was like assembly. I don't know why that was the 100 levels, but it was. And then the other one was Java and learning patterns of programming and having like some more structured, because before then it was all IT stuff that I was uh-huh. learning from other people and programming. I was only self-taught. I bought a PHP book, but some of the concepts like I, I, I needed a tutor to kind of like help me or not necessarily like tutor per se, but I needed someone that was more experienced to help me bridge some of the gaps in my understanding. When I got to, to the university, I found that there mm-hmm. and I was able to get, you know, just, just those couple of missing links that like, once you understand them, once somebody, you know, whiteboards or chalkboards it with you, who's, who's knowledgeable, or, you know, you're able to ask a couple questions in class that like, like the little tiny, tiny things that are huge roadblocks. But once you understand that one tiny thing, then boom, you're just unbounded and unleashed. Yep. And so I just started learning more and more on my own. I quickly started learning Python because everybody talked about Python. But then I found out about Ruby. Rails was getting really hot at that time. It was like Rails 2.0. So I was really into that. Then it's it's funny, though. You, you talk about some of this stuff. You know, you got into IT, going to BYU you know, going on a mission, you know, all of these things are things that I identify with as well, you know, because I, I went on my mission to Italy and then came back, went to BYU. I studied computer engineering at BYU, not computer science. But uh, I worked in the office of IT, setting up servers and all this stuff. And so it's it's interesting to me to listen to and say, oh, yeah, I remember going through some of this stuff. You know, I, I did take a bunch of computer science classes at BYU because that was part of the computer engineering major. But yeah, 
it, it's just interesting uh, coming into that. And then, yeah, you're talking about getting into Ruby, which is, I think, where we got to know each other was in the Ruby community initially. Probably. I mean, did you go to the meetups at Mosey? Yes. I, that's probably where we met. And that's where I learned about Node, that there was like, yeah. do, you, do you remember there being a guy with kind of like a funny hat that would come sometimes? No. Okay, never mind. But <laughs> Was that you? No, 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 no. There was a, there was a guy that like, I, I, I didn't see him long enough to know what he was all about. And I didn't ask a question. I, I thought it was maybe just a goofy thing, but it might've been a religious thing. I don't know. But he had like a, it just, I remember the hat was weird. I think it had a tassel on it and it was like small, kind of like a boo has in Aladdin. Mm-hmm. I think it was, if I remember it was something like that, but I, I, my memory could be completely wrong. Anyway. I, I, I seem to have a vague recollect, recollection of something like that. I want to say, oh gosh, his name is escaping me right now, but the guy that started in Structure, I think he might have been the first one that mentioned Node during one of his presentations. And, and that's how I got on the Node path. Interesting. And then I started, I started the Utah JavaScript users group, and we had a couple of meetings and then merged with a couple of guys that were doing an internal thing at their office, which is now Domo. It was yeah. before it was Corda. And so they they had started doing something simultaneously. So within about a month of each other, we both had started. And so I said, hey, I've got like a couple hundred people on this mailing list. I like your name better. Utah JS just sounds better than Utah JS user group. Yeah. So why don't we, you know, we, we kind of talked, we'll, we'll just pull it together. And so that that became Utah JS. And I was, back then, you know, I was struggling through the same problems that everybody struggles through when they first come to JavaScript. Like, mm-hmm. How is it that I'm calling this function on line 12 and there's not a solution for it on line 15? <laughs> you know, that right. async confusion. And then I started working. Somebody wanted some side work done. It, was, it started out as IT stuff, but then quickly moved into programming. Uh-huh. I dropped out of school because I was kind of bored. Like I was already kind of considering like maybe going to a technical school instead. Like there's a couple like Newmont University and Stevens right. Henniger around here. So I was already considering that because just as much as the university was like awesome social life and like I love the springboard that it gave me, it just wasn't focused to my style of, of learning. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't, I, I mean, I'd never really wanted a degree. It was something that my, my parents and my grandparents kind of always spoke like, well, of course you'll go to college and get a degree, you know? Of course. And, and so I, when I was there, I just really didn't feel like school was for me and I wanted a way out. And when I, when I started working this job part-time and then later they were like, okay, well, we want to hire you. And I was like, I don't know if that's the right thing for me to do. Maybe I should finish school, but I, you know, I'd already kind of been several times on the fence. And so I was like, okay, if you, if you give me the same that a college graduate would get as my salary, which was way below what I was worth by the way, but again, like happy college student had no idea. I'll do it. And so then I worked for, and I don't begrudge them at all for that. I think that, you know, as a startup, you want to find those bright people that are coming out of high school and college that are worth, you know, like a mid-level developer, but you're getting them at the cost of a college student. Like you want to do that. And that that's fair. It, it works out for people. It helps grow opportunities. So I don't begrudge that at all. And they probably wouldn't have had the money to pay me what, what I was worth at that, that time. But it, it was, uh, I could argue the point, but keep talking. Well, it, it, anyway, it was just, it was so exciting. It was so exciting. And I loved it so much. Like, I just don't regret it at all. 
Wasn't that the radar company that you worked at? Yes. Yes. And that's where I, I first saw, because we had a bunch of different boards that we we uh, prototyped on uh-huh. to, to try to test things out and, and see like what, what limits we could push. Because we were doing, we were, we were taking radar data, which is like sonar or an ultrasound or, you know, like any of that ADAR technology. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, so we basically beamed out what was, I think it was more or less like a Wi-Fi A type signal. I, th- I think it might've been 10, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say what it was anyway, but, but we, we were doing something that I think was in the public band. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's just light that you can't see that goes out and bounces back. And then we would, we would try to visualize it. And I, um, I got us from, we used to have it so that you had to plug in a composite cable. And I was like, hey, I think that with today's technology, was Firefox had taken the world by storm and was so innovative with so many new cool features. And I was like, I bet that we could get this working in Firefox where we send a small image to the browser several times a second. And instead of having this go out on a composite cable on a crappy display, like we could maybe overlay this on Google Maps. And so that's what we did. Like, it was amazing. We, we got everything. I mean, it was progressive. You know, it started out, we just took the crappy images that we were sending over composite that were like these really crude images. That we first converted that. Then we separated that out into like the data versus the, because the data was in the image. That was the only way to get the data originally when I got there. But then we separated out the data into, into JSON and XML and some of these military formats and and um, I mean, that, anyway, that's that's when I first saw a tiny computer. It was the, 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 a Gumsticks uh, was, was one of these things that came out around that time. And then that was a precursor to the Raspberry Pi. When I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh, one day we'll have servers in people's homes and there'll be tiny little things that just sit on your desk, like about the size of the conventional hard drive today. And that will be like the future. And that's when... And then the Raspberry Pi came out and the price was like a 10x difference where, you know, a gumsticks might run you $200 or $300. A Raspberry Pi was $25 to $35. Yeah. And it was like, this is not just something that like could happen. Like this is going to happen. Now it still hasn't yet, yet but happened yet. But that's, that's what, you know, my, my goal is transitioned into is to bring ownership and like real, you know, internet connectivity between people that trust each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to be able to have a device in my house, a device in your house. And because we trust each other, we can, you know, that nothing's ever going to be like direct. We're not going to have a line of sight connection or anything, but we can have a, with encryption, any connection that goes from one encrypted point to another encrypted point is now a peer connection. It's a private right. connection. So anyway, that's, that's what I want to see. And a lot of that spark, I mean, I was something I was working on even back in high school. I, I had that problem. Like there's this XKCD of, you know, want to send a file from one person to another even internet experts are still stumped because it's it's so like it's like you always have to upload it to somebody else's server for someone to download it. It should right. be, just be able to open up a thing. I'm like, and that's what Telebit, like going back to Telebit, that Telebit is all part of this thing. You know, you you install it on a computer or a device, and then you give somebody the URL. Boom! Now you can share a file. So anyway, that's that's kind of bringing things full circle. I guess well, not even full circle. Literally up to to about where I am now with a, maybe a couple missing pieces and jumps, but that's. It's kind of my story. Right. So you ran into Node at a Ruby meetup. I just want to back up a little bit. What was it that made you make the transition? Because it seems like people come into different technologies and I'm, I'm not going to defend or knock any particular technology. 
but you know they come in and they try you know they work in one technology and it's like this is nice they work in another technology this is really nice and then work in another technology it's like oh my gosh i love this yeah that's kind of what happened to me okay like and it started with jquery like I was like, you know, all this rail stuff is cool, but what if we just, and, and this is the, the, the acronym single page application was not a thing. Okay. And when I told people my thoughts on this, they looked at me like I was an idiot. I was like, well, what if you just use the JavaScript on the front end and communicate to the back end with, with an API and, and JSON, like, why not just do that? And so I was like prototyping those little applications with jQuery where I was like trying to wrangle rails to not serve HTML, but to use JSON instead, which it had support for, but not like, you know, everything has today. Like it was, it was kind of more, I, I would say, new slash experimental. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was there, but it, there were problems that I ran into that were difficult to solve because of the, how Rails has layers upon layers upon layers. I actually was, one of the things I was building was a music player and uh, I ended up submitting a patch to Rails, which I was too young at the time, or too inexperienced, rather. You know, you're never too young, but I didn't understand quite what, how things were supposed to work with the, you know, the diff sign-offs and stuff like that. GitHub wasn't around yet, or if it was, it was, like, very small. So to, to get Core support, because Core's had just come out and a few browsers supported it. But anyway, so I was just loving the front end, not because I love the front end. Like, I, I don't really like CSS or HTML, but JavaScript was just so light and so simple. And it just allowed you to do things uh, in, in such a flexible way. So like I learned so much education wise in terms of like learning Java at school, getting introduced to Python to see like, you know, Python really has this mentality of like configuration being explicit, which is just great. And the Ruby's like beautiful, but in the opposite direction where everything's convention and there's just lots of layers, which is sometimes beautiful and sometimes terrible. And then Node was just, it was new and it was exciting. And uh, I think one of the things I really liked about it was, you know, the idea of having code in the browser and on the server. And then Node was just really lightweight and portable. Like, go and try to install Ruby. I mean, I'm sure it's a better story today, but like back then you try to install Ruby on a system and you have to follow like seven different guides and like figure out which version's compatible, what version, and nothing ever worked. Like you'd, you'd go to an open source project, get the code, set it up on your computer and like nothing works. But Node was like so small. It's just this little binary and then, you know, these little bunches of files and Node modules and it didn't require C compiler to, to get it going. The very few things in Node, even back then, required a C compiler. That's fair. It, it did have compatibility issues similar to what you were talking about with Ruby, but yes, it, it yeah. And, and the other thing is, is Node went out of its way to make sure that it was supported on some platforms that Ruby in general didn't prioritize. Yeah, so like I had to do some work to get it working on ARM devices. Node or Ruby? Node. Okay. But I was, like when I first started at SpotRF, I was going to try to get Ruby Event Machine because that's I'd, I'd watched this excellent yeah. talk on Ruby Event Machine and I was like, oh, cool. Like this is, you know, this would, this would make a web server so great. I just barely started trying to get Ruby set up on some of our prototype devices to be able to be that, you know, JSON web server. So we'd have like this super like ultra modern, which now is like what everybody has. So mm -hmm. I feel so validated that I made the right choice that has ended up being really hugely successful for them and their partners, but like using the JSON API. And then, but then there was problems I was running into with Ruby and it was like ridiculously slow. And the node was just kind of zippy 
And it was, there were, there were definitely problems with Node and ARM at that time. In fact, I think there probably still are. But we were able to get product out the door. And, and there were like some times where there was this, oh man, there was one December. It was probably the second December that I was working there. And it was like all hands on deck. We were there from morning until, you know, 10, 11, 12 at night busting our butts to get something so we could meet a contract so that we could all not lose our jobs come January. Oh, <laughs> so that's, that's what, you know, back to that thing of like, they may not have had the money to pay right. me at that time. Like really they were, they were running on a budget. The guy that owned it, I'm pretty sure that he was taking like next to nothing, you know, in terms of salary that we were getting paid and he was probably running some credit cards at the time. I don't, I don't know for sure, but I can only imagine. Anyway, sorry, now I'm getting a little jumbled and mixing stories, but lead me in the oh, right direction again, Chuck. Ask me another question. No, it's, it's all good. So you get into Node. Um, at what point does this idea of a home server and Node and everything start coming together? Because I know that you worked on it. You had a startup that worked on it. Uh, there was an exit from the startup. I don't know how much of all of this you want to talk about, but it, it seems like everything was kind of coming together around some of these ideas and I'm wondering at what point they started to gel and and how it all sort of connects up now for you. It has been a very long process. It really started back in high school when I wanted to send a picture to my mom and I had like this pause moment where I couldn't figure out what the right way to do it because we were sitting across well, I was in my room and she was in the living room. So we're like 20 feet away. And the the question that caused me to like halt because I, I couldn't make a quick decision. It seemed like I should be able to, but I couldn't. was like, how do I get this picture to my mom? And I, because I had to stop and think like, well, like I could upload it to Flickr because I, I don't know if Dropbox was a thing yet, but Flickr, I'm pretty sure was around at that mm-hmm. time. So I was like, well, maybe I can upload it to Flickr to send it to her. Or, well, like I have this, PHP album software that I'm running, maybe I could give her the IP address or like, or I could, I could put it on a USB drive or I, well, I could send it through email. And it's like all of these things were like convenient if you wanted, if it's like, okay, I want to send this to somebody over in China, you know, half the world away, all of them are like really convenient. But it's like, I want to give this to somebody that's in the next room from me. Then all of them seem like, really overkill and inconvenient. Right. And, and so that was part of the genesis was just like wanting to share a photo and, and being like, there should be a way that the computer that I have that has all this capability that I built myself, you know, that's so powerful. And, you know, with my, my ability to create things with programming, like there should be a way that without my mom having to do anything special, I should be able to speak. And just by speaking, she should be able to get access to the picture. And by speaking, I don't mean that I say, computer, send picture to my mom. I meant that like it's sh- that the way to do it should be so simple that I should be able to communicate it in just a few words. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you know, like open this app, click AJ, you know, like that's kind of what I was envisioning at the time. The web was not powerful like it is today. So like I wasn't, I wasn't even really thinking necessarily a web server. I was thinking maybe some sort of desktop application that would do the function of like what Facebook is. But like web stuff, just the web wasn't super capable back then. But it it morphed over time. So I had other experiences like that. 
And I, and I just kind of have always followed that trajectory of learning because all those things are interesting to me. Devices are interesting to me. I mean, I worked at this radar company. It was excellent. Right. But I, it followed that trajectory. Another thing that came up was when my sister and I, we were sharing an iTunes account and uh, iTunes Match just came out. So I paid for it right away because I was like, oh, this is great. But, you know, of course, who would think that someone's enthusiastic about music and willing to pay for it would have more than, you know, a couple thousand songs. So <laughs> it's... I signed up for the iTunes match and then immediately within like two hours, I think it was about that long. It, it, it pops up and it says like, you're over the quota for how much music you can, you can sync. And I was like, Oh, that's dumb. But some of it, like, you know, probably half my library was synced or something. And so my sister logs in and she sees like all the music is available. So she starts to download some of it and uh, then play it. And she's in the living room with my mom and starts playing you're beautiful by James Blunt. And in the official version, that's not the version you get from the now CD or the radio, but like the, the quote unquote legit version, it says the F word somewhere in the middle of the song. And so my sister calls me up and she's all upset because she's like, I'm sitting in, you know, because she's, she's a, a young teenager at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, so she's like, I was playing your music in the living room with mom and the F word come on, came on, what's up? And it even says radio edit in the title. And we found out that what iTunes did was it synced all the metadata but it didn't sync the actual data. So, you know, we thought that she was getting a copy of my version of the song and she wasn't. And so that was just like a reinforcement of like, because I'm a collector, because I'm someone that cares about my digital stuff. Like I care about my movies and my music. They're important to me. And I do choose to edit some of my music sometimes. And if it weren't so darn inconvenient, I'd probably edit movies sometimes too. And plus I probably don't rewatch movies as frequently as I re-listen to music. But like I, I like that aspect of ownership and and I just felt like, you know, there really needs to be an avenue for this. So so all of these things, just experiences here and there. And and I, you know, again, like I was talking to more people about it, talking about more people about it. And and to this day, people still give me stupid looks when I say that, you know, one day everybody's gonna have a server in their home. Just like when I was talking about single page applications and people just give me stupid looks, like, why would you ever want to do that? So I, I still believe that it's it's very much something that's happening in the future. And you're starting to see things like Helm is one of the companies. There's like two or three of them. Lima was one that I, I don't think quite met the promise of what I'm looking for. Helm Helm looks like it's starting small and might have big potential. There's a couple other ones. But like there's there are other people out there that are really into ownership. And then and then a lot of media coverage about privacy. Although I don't think that, you know, the average person cares about convenience much more than they care about privacy. And so I think the convenience of accessing stuff that you own, targeting people that have like backup drives and stuff like that is really where that market's going to emerge. It's not going, I don't, I don't think that it's actually going to emerge out of privacy concerns. I think privacy concerns will help get media boost to some of these projects, but right. I don't think people are going to change their purchasing decisions based on privacy concerns because it's cool to talk about, but it, you know, when you got to put the dollar down, I, I don't think people really care as much as we'd hope that they'd care. Right. And Oh, and by the way, the, the name of the new company, we're, we're right in the middle of changing names, but it is Root and it is the rootcompany.com. Cool. And that's what you're working on today? Well, it is what I'm working on these days. Today, I'm I'm working on Big Squid stuff, and you know, took a break to talk with you. But right. after hours today, one of the things that I'm I'm working on, and this is so cool, but something no JavaScript. I just do stuff JavaScript developers don't do, right? But um, so CSRs, certificate signing requests, are right. what you need to be able to do things like Let's Encrypt or the old traditional, you know, go to some expensive sslprovider.com and, um, you know, typically, you know, you got to... I've done both. Yep. Yeah. So they're in a format called ASN1, 
And uh, there are libraries for this in JavaScript. There's PKIJS, ASN1JS, ForgeJS, mm-hmm. and a couple other ones around these certificate standards. The problem is they're so darn big and the cross cross library compatibility is really low because some of them were were made using binary strings. Some of them take advantage of array buffers. Some of them use different big libraries. And so in order to get them to work together, to get them to do a full loop of what you want, you have to mix and match them and, and create these little compatibility layers where you translate, well, I get it and base 64 from this one, but I have to pass it as a big end to that one. And you know, there's all these concerns you have to worry about. And so I've, I've had some trouble in getting the support that I want in both the browser version of Greenlock as well as the, the node version of Greenlock. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it works great. I, I don't want to put down, I, I, I love my product. I think that lots of other people, I mean, I know that lots of other people are downloading it and using it. I get positive feedback on it. So but there's some things that don't work as well as they could. So it's not that it's broken, but it's like, I want it to be better and have fewer dependencies and support more things. Right. So I actually really dug in this past week to the ASN1 format, which is basically you can kind of think of it like a mix of XML and XLST. So XML and schemas of XML or mm-hmm. like JSON and JSON.org that defines like first name is that first underscore name, first camel case name or all lowercase first name. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a binary format that specifies things like that. Like how do you how do you send some data in a way that the other system can understand it, even though you can pick a lot of arbitrary stuff or arbitrary things. Anyway, right. I've been working in that. So I've been doing reverse engineering, even though there's there's docs available, but in order to understand the docs, you kind of have to like be able to look at the the binary formats and like look at them with a hex diff. I've been using hexfiend. Uh-huh. And, and then, you know, kind of see like, okay, if I generate a certificate with example.com, this is what it looks like. Now I'm going to generate it with example.net and I'm going to do a binary diff of the two. Okay, now I can see every place where example.com was referenced. Also, I can see where the length parameters are because those are highlighted and I can see that, okay, when I when I add one character extra over here, you know, it affects all right. of so I, and, and I'm doing all of this in JavaScript, and I've come up with a really stupid solution that is actually incredibly efficient and works really well, which is which is basically make a binary template out of hex strings and then insert uh-huh. the things that need to go in the places they need to go. Cool. All right. Well, um, I'm going to push us over to the next segment of the show, which is picks. But before we do that, where do people find you online besides JavaScript Jabber? Oh, goodness. So I am cool AJ 86 everywhere you want to be. So, you know, you can hit me up on Pinterest. I won't see it if you hit me up on Pinterest because I probably haven't logged into that in a year. But uh, you can hit me up anywhere. You just type coolage86 into whatever platform you're on and, and I'll be there. Gmail, Twitter, et cetera. And then if you're into more low-level stuff, like if, if you're into security, if you're into devices, I just put a, a sign-up button on my blog and I'm, I'm going to start, I just did it, but I, I want to start this newsletter thing. So if you go to coolaj6.com and uh, you'll see just a boatload of articles on different topics. If you've got something kind of low level like that and you just do a command F on the blog tab, you'll probably run into something cool. So that that's that's another avenue. And then the rootcompany.com again is the, the company that's doing Greenlock, Telebit, and what we're right now calling Hub, but the name of that may change, which is the home server. Awesome. Well, let's do some picks. What do you want to shout out about? 
Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Oh, man, Chuck, I'm so bad about this. I always, either I'm full of them and I forget them or I haven't thought about it at all. So one thing I'm going to pick is jcpenny.com. If you are tall like me, I'm going to give you some secrets and you are going to love me for this. All right. So this is for us that are either tall or have long torsos. You can go on jcpenny.com and you can get shirts that will fit you. If you're big and tall, you want to shop Van Houston. A 16 and a half neck on there fits me like a boat. Now, if you're if you're a little slenderer, you want Stafford. I find a 16 and a half is a little bigger than what I need. Now I'm 240 pounds and six foot five, so that kind of gives you an idea of my my body proportions. The Staffords fit well and they've got room to breathe. I can't right now, I've got a little bit of extra weight on me. I can't fit into a J Ferrar 16 and a half, but the 17 fits just perfect. And if I lose a little bit of weight, I'll fit into the 16 again by fit because the, the, how far it goes around your belly is measured at the next size. So if you, if you, if you're really slender, the 16 and a half is low as you can go on button up shirts. I've, I've been talking this whole time about button up shirts because I like button up shirts. So anyway, I, I highly recommend JCPenney. J Ferrar is what I like to buy for my button ups. And then Stafford is is my number two because those sizes fit. And I get the length that I need. I get this, the 38 inch arms. They, they've got 37, 38, 39, like stuff that's in that range. So if you got mm-hmm. long arms and you're tall, that's that's going to be my biggest pick. And then uh, also along the, the side of clothes, Express, they've got this four-way stretch jeans that are very flattering. So you can get a little bit smaller than what your actual size is and fit into them. But they're, they're just am- amazingly comfortable. I, I had some shirts and jeans wear out recently and I had to go shopping. And so that's, that's why, why this is on, on my mind. And then also another thing I'm going to pick, which I've picked on JavaScript Jabber, but I just love this so much. Chris Ferdinandi, who is on JavaScript Jabber with us, he has this gomakethings.com newsletter. And, and that's actually what inspired me to start being more active on my blog again. And, and, and to, to start doing a newsletter was just how great he does it and me wanting to aspire to that. But he, he's all about vanilla JS, like plain, simple JavaScript. And he, he just gives excellent tips each week. I, I love reviewing it. There's I'm a very opinionated person. And there's, of course, things that I disagree with him on. But for the most part, I think he's just so good about keeping it simple and showing you like, hey, you don't need six gigabytes of NPM install hello world app to be able to, you know, do things that you need to do in a browser. You can, you can keep it simple and and use the APIs that are already available to you. Awesome. So I guess one pick that I can throw out there, and this is something that, uh, 
I'm trying to get set up on devchat.tv. There's a, we use WordPress at devchat.tv and uh, there's a plugin called King Sumo that allows us to do contests. And basically it's, it's giveaway contests. So you enter your email and then, you know, we'll send you free stuff if you win. And, you know, it allows you to do sharing on social and things like that. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, setting some of that up. And uh, yeah, the, the things that we're setting up right now for our, we've had some authors on JavaScript Jabber or Adventures in Angular recently. And uh, some of them are from Manning and they've sent us some access codes for the books to give away to our listeners. And I thought that would just be a cool way to give them away. It's like, hey, just put your email address in and we'll tell you if you won. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Another tool that I'm using on the back end to manage the list is Drip, and that's at getdrip.com. I think they also have like drip.com or drip.co or something at this point too. So anyway, uh, those are those are the things that I'm using there. And uh, yeah, one other thing I'm going to shout out about is I've been working on this Get a Job book probably for the last three months. And I just finished sort of the basic rough draft is what I'm calling it. And the reason I'm calling it the basic rough draft was in order to get into the groove to write, I would just basically sit down and just crank out all of the basic information I wanted in the book and not worry about whether or not I could remember the specific example I used for each thing. And so now I'm going to go back and I'm going to add some experiences that I've had and some experiences that other folks have had. And I also need to work on some things tying the different ideas in the book together. The system that I've been using or that I, I signed up for a book authoring course, and you can find that itself. I think it's self-publishingschool.com. And uh, I have an affiliate code for that. And I'd really appreciate you if you went and used that instead. There will be a link in the show notes for that. And then the other tool that I've been using is Softcover. And that's softcover.io. It only really works on Mac. I haven't seen it work on Windows or Linux. But Anyway, I write my book in Markdown and then I run a little Ruby script and it converts it to PDF, Mobi, and what's the other EPUB. So anyway, uh, good stuff there. You can find the details at softcover.io. If you go check it out there, just keep in mind that they also sell books. You can publish through them or self-publish through them. That's not what I intend to do. You can also just get details on the tool. So anyway, uh, those are my picks. AJ, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Chuck. I... uh and it's it's good to relive some of those early memories. I just yeah got so happy while I was talking with you. Just I uh, wish I wish people could see the smile on my face. And I hope <laughs> yours as you know you're, you're recounting your own story or yeah you know, younger and going through these things. Just have a good time and learn a lot and and you know have hope you have those experiences you can look back on and just smile about the cool stuff you did that no one else was doing or the mistakes you made that other people weren't willing to make yet. Yep. Yeah, it's it's fun to think back on that stuff. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up and we will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.